0: What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Uh, Last week was a blessing to hear from the Reverend David Wiley, a former pastor here at Grace, and he shared some inspirational words with us about that disciple that isn't always such an inspiration. He told us about doubting Thomas, and he reminded us that We all have doubt. We all have times where we are double-minded, but either way, God loves us. If you doubt, there is space for you here today. If you are full of faith, don't push away those who doubt. Even Jesus made room for doubters after his resurrection. Today we look at another problem that crops up when we uh, disagree over things like the resurrection or faith and doubt and plenty of other areas as well. We are going to explore conflict resolution. What do you do when people disagree? How do you treat others that view things differently from you? Maybe most important, what does Jesus want for us when we are certain that the other person is definitely, absolutely wrong? Uh, Let's hear our scripture for today from Sal. This is from the book of Acts. Uh, We followed the disciple Peter leading up to Easter. Now we switch to that other key disciple of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. Uh, He didn't travel with Jesus and the other disciples. In fact, his story takes place years after Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead. Uh, At this point, he still goes by the name Saul. His name changed to Paul, but it won't happen until years later. Uh, So at this point, he's still being called Saul. But let's hear his powerful encounter with the Lord and his conversion. This is Acts chapter 9, verses
1: 1 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any who belongs to the Way, man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going alone and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Soul, soul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they laid him by the hand and brought him unto Damascus for three days. He was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many, about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go. He is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house he laid his hands on and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here had sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell down, fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. For the several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God, thanks, thanks to be God. Amen. Let us pray.
0: Lord, may we be an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ, Work in us even as we deal with strife and conflict in our lives and in those around us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. My wife Emily and I were talking about school sports this past week. Our boys are starting to get old enough to join clubs and teams where the competition is starting to heat up some. Some of the children want to play in certain positions and you have to show off your skills if you want to get the best spots on the team. We got to talking about what school sports were like when we were younger, and Emily shared something that was surprising to me. She said in her middle school, everyone had to compete with the freshmen and the, uh, the freshmen in high school to play on the team, and for the junior varsity team, there were the freshmen and sophomores, but they had to compete also with the juniors and seniors to play on that team, and that left only the very best players in the school on the varsity team. That seems strange to me because when I was going through sports, only seventh and eighth graders could play in middle school sports, only freshmen and and sophomores could play in junior varsity, and only juniors and seniors could play in varsity sports. The only exception was if you were really good, you could move up to the next level, not down like Emily had described. I told Emily I thought the system she grew up with was totally unfair. It put more students competing for fewer spots. She disagreed. She thought the program was fair, and the way it was run gave everyone a chance to play no matter how good of an athlete they might be. We were at a little bit of an impasse. I was thinking about my coaches growing up and uh, how only the best players could play uh, on, on, the, on the field. And she was thinking about her experiences where everyone got a chance no matter what. I probably should have known better. Emily didn't go to public school like I did. She went to a Mennonite school. So, of course, they would be more fair in how they treated the students. I finally gave up thinking maybe it was okay to do it a different way. We parted ways getting on with our morning routines when I hear Emily shout from the other room, but if you wanna talk about unfair, let me tell you about how the school picked the leads for the musicals. And I thought maybe those Benedict schools aren't any fairer than other schools. Maybe I was just talking about the wrong extracurricular activity. Of course, Emily and I have had differences of opinion on far bigger things than that. We've had to navigate Uh, moving several times, once during the pandemic, having children and raising them. Lately though, we've really seemed to hit our stride. We are more assertive in saying what we think and feel, but are also far quicker to actually listen to each other. This is a positive loop of communicating clearly and listening actively. I used to be far worse at this. I used to cringe at the mere mention of Emily asking to talk. And I, I don't mean just wanting to talk, I mean her saying, Brian, we need to talk. I knew I did something that she didn't like. I knew I was in the wrong because, of course, I'm in the wrong. This was all before, though, I, I was forced into learning about conflict resolution. You see, I didn't want to learn about conflict resolution. I had to learn about it. Uh, I have always wanted to avoid conflict as much as possible. In my childhood, our family always fought. It was never violent, but we were always pointing out each other's faults and mistakes. We could turn anything into a battle. I remember sharing a room with my older brother. At one point, we had beds that were on opposite sides of the room, and we had to share one rotating fan between the two of us. It was a never-ending war over that fan. Who cares that if we just let it rotate, it would be even between the two of us, We both just had to have it all the time, right? But as I got older, I didn't want to fight with my family anymore. I would rather simply lose out than fight. I just wanted to avoid conflict altogether. And for a long time, that was good enough. I didn't hurt anybody, and nobody hurt me whenever there was a disagreement. But eventually, I had to start engaging with all kinds of different Eventually, I had to help people who weren't getting their fair share, and, and I had to stand up for those folks. And that's when I had to learn about conflict resolution. It might be disappointing to hear this, but most of the conflicts I've had to deal with in life were conflicts in churches that I've served. Some people might think churches should never have conflict, but what I've learned over the years is that conflict in and of itself, is not necessarily a bad thing. Conflict just means we have different points of view. When God made this world, he didn't make it so that everyone was exactly the same. He didn't make animals to look the same. He made the world with tons of variety. And that variety means, inevitably, that we are going to disagree. God had decreed that throughout all eternity, people in churches for all time would disagree about the color that the carpets in the sanctuary should be. There will always be conflict. What really matters, though, is not if you disagree. What matters is how you handle those differences. I know a man who has been quoting his mother for years and years, no matter how old he gets, he says his mother always told him, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. You are going to say something that someone else will disagree with, but how are you going to say it? How will you treat that person in your disagreement? And that's the question we see Ananias dealing with in Acts chapter 9. The Lord calls out to Ananias and he answers, here I am, Lord. And it's like the prophet Samuel, when he was a little boy, he heard the Lord speak to him, and he said, here I am. But he didn't know the Lord's voice at that time. He had to learn from the priest about the voice being God's voice. Ananias, though, he's no boy. He knows the Lord's voice, and he is ready immediately to follow God's instruction. Unfortunately, it's about the last thing he would have expected God to tell him to go and do. God says, go find Saul of Tarsus and lay hands on him. Ananias, he hesitates at this instruction. He knows the stories. He knows how many people Saul has put in prison and has killed. Saul doesn't just do his job. He does it gladly. He is happy to put as many Christians in jail as possible. Ananias does not want to be next. So he checks in with God to make sure he's hearing him right. Are you sure it's this guy? Are we talking about the same Saul here? And the Lord assures him, yes, this is the one that I have picked. Go. So he goes and prays for Saul. And after an incredible miracle, Saul is converted and becomes a new man, Paul, as he follows the way of Jesus Christ. Now, I can understand Ananias' hesitation to go in and see Saul. I feel a connection with him because I have always been like him. I don't want to put myself in harm's way. I like my family and my life just the way it is. I think my life would be just fine never having to learn the hard lessons that come from being put in prison or having death threats against me. I'll just skip all that, thank you very much. I don't need that kind of conflict in my life. But... But when God calls you to a challenging situation, what do you do? Ananias asks some good clarifying questions to make sure he has the story straight. And then he goes. He goes into the conflict with faith in God. And here's the incredible thing. Ananias was right to trust God because God had already done a phenomenal work in Saul. God already changed Saul's life when he was knocked off his horse and blinded by the light. Saul didn't eat or drink for three days because he was on the edge of a completely new life that would be committed to Jesus Christ. And Ananias has no idea what's going on. All he knows is that God has chosen Saul, so he goes. How many times Have you gone into a situation ready for conflict, ready for war to break out? I know for me, it's every Thanksgiving when I see my family. Uh, Just kidding. But when we anticipate conflict, when we know people are at war with one another, or even with you, what will you do? Will you go anyways? Will you go into it knowing that God loves those people? that they are the chosen ones of God. See, here's the, the one big challenge that we face. We hear a rumor about someone like Ananias did, or we have an encounter with someone and it's not good. Sometimes it's terrible and we think that person is a bad person. We think our one encounter, or maybe even several encounters, tells us everything we need to know about that person. And so we make a judgment. Stay away. Avoid them. Hide your kids. Hide your wife. This person is no good. But what we fail to recognize is the way that God sees this person. God doesn't see their one interaction with you or several interactions. God sees the totality of this person's life. God doesn't see the wrong that they've done. God sees them through the saving work of Jesus Christ. If someone is rotten in their 20s, what God sees is their conversion and good work 20 years later. God sees a chosen person even when all we can see is the bad stuff that they've done. There's a book that I really appreciate called The Anatomy of Peace. It's about how to get at the very root of conflict so that there can be real, lasting peace. And a key idea in it is that we often invite the very behaviors we say that we don't like in another person. We do this by judging them. And then we go and get other people and tell them about what happened so they can back us up. Yep, that person is no good. They're a dirty, rotten rascal. And all my friends agree with me. How about that? The only way out of this vicious, broken cycle that makes conflicts worse is to see others as they should be seen. To see them as God sees them. So one important thing to remember when it comes to conflict is to hold out hope, to hold on to the possibility of a work God has already done in a person's life. God works miracles, and as the old hymn reminds us, even the vilest offender receives a pardon from God. But even if a person's behavior, when you encounter them, is not reformed, it is not up to your standards, you gotta work on seeing them from God's perspective. The scriptures don't describe God as this vengeful being just waiting to punish us. No, God is constantly calling us to a life of love. God is sitting and waiting to spring a trap of transformed living on us. Like the Apostle Paul, God is already working in the lives of the people with whom. We are in conflict. As we end today, I want to share with you the story of Alan Lingham. He grew up in England. His mother had been widowed and remarried, then abused for years by this second husband until he left her when Alan was just eight months old. Alan was always getting into fights with the neighborhood bullies. He was abused by multiple people in his childhood. At 14, he found his mother dead from a cerebral hemorrhage a few years later he was on the streets drinking gambling and fighting he managed to get a contract for professional rugby at 17 but also he sold drugs and collected debts for dealers are you getting a sense of how bad this person had become eventually he went to jail He stabbed multiple inmates, had violent outbursts, and was completely paranoid at one point. He finally hit rock bottom and decided to take his own life. He says, with tears streaming down my face, I dropped to my knees and made one final plea to God. If you're real and you hear me, put a white dove outside my prison window. Show me you are with me. And the next morning, he saw a dove sitting there. And in that moment, he felt a change. He started praying and studying the Bible and gave his life over to Jesus. These days, Ellen is going back to prison not to serve time, but to tell people about God and the hope and forgiveness that comes through him. He's had a room full of men who have committed some of the worst crimes, reduced to tears as he tells them about God's love. He has a ministry to young people on the streets and even serves as a chaplain for some sports teams. After many years, his family is coming back to him too. Now, if you met Alan on the streets when he was a teenager, who would you have seen? Somebody ready to hurt you? Or the man that would have helped so many people find God? What Ananias shows us is that God desires a holy conflict, not one where we wage war believing God is on our side. Holy conflict means we recognize our differences, and as we see that God is at work in all of our lives, even in the people who as of yet refuse to acknowledge it, that is when the Holy Spirit does a work. The Spirit speaks to Ananias. The Spirit speaks to Paul. And speaks to me and to you through us to the world out there. We don't need to fear conflict, only recognize it for what it is. It is an opportunity for us to see Jesus alive and at work in those around us. Amen? Amen.
1: For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.